0: Alright, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch.
1: Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Yuka Hiruma Kishida about her new book, Kenkoku University and the Experience of Pan Asianism Education in the Japanese Empire, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2019. Dr. Hiruma Kishida is an associate professor of history at Bridgewater College in Virginia. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Yuka. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up, and how did you become a historian of modern Japan and East Asia?
0: Okay, thank you, Shatran for having me on your program today. Um, my name is Yuka I grew up in Nara prefecture in Japan, uh, I grew up surrounded by my grandparents, grand uncles and grand aunts who often shared with me stories about their childhood. Um, my own grandparents were a bit too young to go to war during World War II, but my grand served the Japanese military in Burma, China, and one of them was in Manchukuo when the Soviet Union invaded there in 1945. Listening to their stories made me interested in history for history in, you know, um, childhood. Now, going through Japan's national history curriculum and being exposed to the so-called textbook controversy made me want to study abroad and learn about Japan's history um, somewhere outside of the country. So I chose to study abroad in the United States at Soka University of America in California. Taking a um, lot of Asia-related courses at an American college with a diverse student body made me realize how there are so many competing histories and you know, nationalistic histories out there, which creates tensions among nations and also groups of people. Another thing that I found was how East Asia continued to be marginalized in the understanding of history in the United States. My advisor, a wonderful historian, Dr. Dong Dong Don Huan, inspired me and encouraged me to pursue further studies in East Asian history. And I was very fortunate to be able to work with another wonderful scholar and mentor, Dr. Stephen Vlastos, at the University of Iowa in a graduate program. So that's how I became a historian. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that, Yuka. Um, So um, I'd now like to move to talking about your uh, new book, uh, Kenkoku University and the Experience of Pan-Asianism. So could you tell us how you came to write this book and what you see as its main arguments and contributions?
0: Yes, um, this book developed from my PhD dissertation, which I completed in December 2013. And I added further research to that uh, when I came across with Kenkuku University, which I call Kendai using Japanese abbrevi- abbreviation, um, this just fascinated me. you know uh, I was fascinated by how idealistic it looks as a wartime colonial educational institution of Japan. This school promised to foster ethnic harmony among the ethnically diverse student body and make itself a place to train a new generation of leaders who would shoulder the future of Manchukuo. The school administration often talked about ethnic equality as well. That fascinated me as a unique institution in the Japanese empire. Uh, now, as I investigated the actual practice and experience of the institution, of course, I found that there was a significant gap between the idealistic, you know, was and reality. But I also found that the school also served as a space for ethnically diverse students and scholars to have dynamic exchange of ideas among themselves about the meaning of Pan-Asian unity. So my intention in this book was to uncover Those individual experiences and exchange of ideas among non elites as they went through the lived experiment of Pan-Asianist education. And in terms of the contributions, um, I hope hope that the book makes uh, two contributions. First of all, the book intends to offer a nuanced interpretation of Pan-Asianism as Japan's imperial ideology. The works that focus on Japanese political elites have suggested the dominance of a hierarchical and Japan-centered vision of Pan-Asianism by the late 1930s. Now, by looking at Japanese and non-Japanese scholars and students of Kendai who stood outside of the political elite circle, my book shows that there continue to be a wide variety of articulations of this ideology all through the 1930s and even until the end of World War II, so that is 1945. So in that sense, this book intends to add to the growing body of literature on Japan's imperial ideology that um, that seek to complicate our understanding by examining non-elites and non-Japanese. Within that growing literature, um, my book's unique feature is that its examination of the ideology is firmly grounded in one particular institution, unlike other works that find various articulations of Pan-Asianism dispersed in different places within the Japanese Empire. So my book intends to recreate an institutional experience of Pan-Asianism and dynamic exchanges of ideas among its campus community members. So those are two contributions that I seek to make through this book. And I argue that an idealistic and egalitarian conception of Pan-Asianism exercised considerable appeal to both Japanese and non-Japanese even late into World War II. Even though at the institutional level, mobilization for total war of Japan intensified contradictions between the ideal and practice.
1: Thank you. I, I, when I was reading the book, I was sort of very captivated by sort of the experiences that you describe of like, wow. you know, the students and sort of the, their ideas and sort of, you know, the, the sort of the mu- multiple sort of visions and articulations um, of Pan-Asianism at um, Kenkoku University. Yes. Um, so when I was reading the book, uh, one of my observations was that it was very richly researched with um, attention to a wide array of sources. Um, so could you tell us a little? bit about what it was like to research for this book. Where did you do your research? Uh, what sorts of sources uh, did you use to write this book? Um, and yeah, just tell us a little bit about the research process.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, the So most of the research that I conducted was in Japan. Uh, so the largest collection of kendai sources is housed at Toyo Bunko in Tokyo, Japan. But Sources on Kendai are also scattered around Japan as well. So initially um, I visited university and public libraries in different prefectures in Japan and also collecting some um, materials from US libraries. Um, And that was because when I was doing my initial round of research for primary sources, Toyo Bunko in Tokyo, Japan, had, you know, periods of closing down or, you know, making some of the sources not available to public because of the renovation. So that's why I had to go to many different places. But um, I ended up visiting Toyo Bunko in Tokyo, Japan, multiple times because its collection on Kendai kept expanding as more new materials were donated by Kendai Alumni Association, and also individual alumni living in Japan and their family members. You know, what was happening was that by the early 2000s, you know, unfortunately, many of those former Japanese Kendai students um, were, you know, getting too old, and some of them were, you know, passing away. And when that happened, um, either they themselves or their family members donated um, their personal collection of materials to Kendai Alumni Association or directly to some libraries. So that's how sources um, got got to Toyo Bunko and its collection on Kendai kept expanding. Um, and I was also lucky to have acquainted with former Kendai students who lived in Japan. Um, I was able to attend Osaka region's monthly meeting and met with several alumni members in 2010 and again in 2011. Um, those meetings among, you know, Osaka region, former Japanese Kendai students, um, th- their meetings are more like banquets and they were held. Yeah. And they were held at the restaurant in Osaka. So they would drink beers and have meals together. Um, several former Japanese students I met there were in their late 80s and 90s, so they were pretty old, but very, you know, very uh, lively discussion was going on. And when I joined them in 2010 and 2011, they happily shared with me their stories um, from their teens and 20s when they were living in Manchukuo. And in addition to the materials I obtained from the Alumni Association, I was able to um, also, you know, receive invaluable materials from three individual alumni members. Those were the sources that they kept and treasured for decades. Um, And among those sources are Kendae's student-run periodical, which I was able to closely analyze in Chapter 6. And that was the you know that was the biggest um, fun that I had in the course of research for this for this book. Um, previous research done in the Japanese language only briefly mentioned this periodical edited by students. Now I was able to extensively use it and analyze its materials together with other similar sources in Chapter Six, all thanks to the gifts. That I received from alumni members, and the new materials that became available at Toyo Bunko at around um, some year, sometime around 2015.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, uh, did you also use sources that were not in Japanese? Because I noticed that there were some uh, sources that were in Chinese.
0: Yes, um, I used. Chinese language materials as well, especially in the chapter on Chinese students. Um, oh, okay, okay,
1: that, that's really yeah. fascinating. Uh, so th- thank you for that. Maybe we can talk about that more uh, when we talk about that chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the introduction, you discuss the unique position of Manchukuo quo uh, within the Japanese empire and also mentioned the tensions as well as the competing visions and articulations of Pan-Asianism that emerged in Manchukuo. Um, so could you tell us a little about this?
0: Yes. Um, so uh, recently, our field has learned how the Japanese empire was not a simple, single entity, but rather an empire that included different parts that interacted with each other. And Manchukuo was one such part, and a rather unique part within that. Um, unlike Taiwan and Korea, Manchukuo claimed itself to be an independent state. As I discuss in my book, the reality betrayed this claim. So, Manchukuo politics was dominated by Japanese civil and military officials who used idealistic and pan Asianist mm-hmm. discourses pragmatically to advance Japan's nobina- dominance and expansion. Even so, By assuming the form of a sovereign state with an ethnically diverse population, and by claiming to spearhead the Pan-Asianist endeavor of creating ethnic harmony, Manchukuo attracted idealists, not just from within the state and Japan, but also from different parts of the Japanese empire. And for those idealists, Manchukuo served as a space to put into practice the idealistic aspects of Japan's Pan-Asianism. And um, so that's about Manchukuo. Now, moving on to the second part of your question, Pan-Asianism. Um, Pan-Asianism as found in pre-war Japanese discourses had some variation. Um, if I take, If I talk about two big strains of ideas within it, one is an egalitarian vision and the Mm -hmm. other is pretty hierarchical. A Gaetarian conception envisioned voluntary cooperation among Asian individuals as they worked together as equal partners. On the other hand, a hierarchical conception identified a clear leader who would guide others to create a new order in Asia. And as I mentioned earlier, by the late 1930s, if you, if you just look at the surface of Japanese politics, Japan's Pan-Asianism was pretty much hierarchical, Japan-centered. But if you look at Manchukuo, and more importantly, if you include both Japanese and non-Japanese discourses of Ma- Pan-Asianism in Manchukuo, you'd find a variation of ideas as to who exactly Asians were, what kind of unity they should aspire to create, and who should guide this endeavor if it's a hierarchical one? And some of those articulations contradicted with Japan's official vision, which was hierarchical and centered on Japan's leadership. And of course, within the context of, Jap- of Japanese-occupied Manchuria, it was not easy to express those divergent interpretations of Pan-Asianism. But Kendai students were different they were encouraged to explore and experiment with Pan-Asianist principle of ethnic harmony. So naturally, investigation of Kendai history reveals a wide variety of articulations and practice of Pan-Asianism. So I hope that answered your you know, to uh, question about Manchuko and Pan Asianism.
1: Absolutely, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think like you know, like Man- Manchuria or Manchuko is like a very rich place to sort of study or sort of think about uh, Pan Asianism and about the ideology of Pan Asianism and how multifaceted um, uh, it was. Um, so, um, so moving on to the uh, to the chapters of the book. Um, So in chapter two, you discuss the origins of Kenkoku University um, as an institution uh, coinciding with the second Sino-Japanese war. So what was the idea behind this institution and what did its founders and planners see as its role in Manchukuo and the Japanese empire? Um, And and, and in in addition to that, you also speak in detail um, about this one figure, um, Ishiwara Kanji, um, so who was he and what was his role? So, I mean, yeah, you can sort of either of you, both of these questions, like if you could uh, share some of your uh, thoughts on this.
0: OK, um, I'm going to first talk about uh, the origin of the institution and then move on to Ishiwara Kanji. Okay, the idea of founding this university in Manchukuo originated in Ishiwara Kanji. Um, I'm going to talk about him more later. But um, in the fall of 1936, Ishiwara, this high-ranking Japanese military officer, initiated this project of um, founding a university in Manchukuo and entrusted the task of actual planning with a group of army officers, Manchukuo government officials, and Japanese intellectuals. Um, And as I discussed in Chapter 2, there emerged disagreement, really sharp disagreement between Ishiwara, the initiator, and the planning committee. But one point of agreement was that they all envisioned this university to become a training ground for generations of leaders who would shoulder the future of Manchukuo. Now, on one hand, Ishiwara originally called this institution Asia Daigaku, or Asia University. And this naming reflected his grand vision that Manchukuo would become the showcase of Pan-Asian unity and a model of a strategic alliance among Japan, Manchukuo, and China. And this is the idea uh, he advocated as East Asian League. So in that case uh, sorry in that sense Ishiwara was hoping that the university would nurture leaders who would shoulder the future of not just Manchukuo, but also the entire East Asia. On the other hand the planning committee led by four Japanese academics, they ended up founding a university and its curriculum with the idea that, the university should serve only the newly established state of Manchukuo and nurture leaders who would engage in the nation building of Manchukuo. So with that idea in mind, the planning committee members changed the name from Asia University to the Kenkoku University. Here, Kenkoku means nation building, referring to nation building of Manchukuo. So, as you can see, even among the people who were involved in the planning process, there were disagreement as to the purpose of Kendai education and how to put pan Asianist education into practice. And in addition to that, the goal of ethnic harmony was so ambiguous that it was open for different interpretations. And in that sense, uh, scholars and students who joined Kendai had the opportunities of reinterpreting Kendai's educational objective on their own terms. Um, Now, just a little more about Ishiwara Kanji. And as I said, he was the uh, initiator of this project of founding Kendai. Um, But he's very famous for his role in the Manchurian incident of 1931, in which Quantum Army um, the Japanese military officers, staged a minor explosion of a section of South Manchurian railway in Manchuria, blamed that on Chinese forces, and began a massive military operation against Chinese forces, which then led to the expansion of Japan's occupation of Manchuria and the subsequent foundation of Manchukuo State. So he's very famous for that. And um, Ishiwara was behind this military operation and the creation of Manchukuo State. He did that with the belief that Japan needed this resource-rich region of Manchuria in order to prepare for the imminent war with the U.S.-led allies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, this role that he played in Manchurian incident is very well known. Uh, what is often forgotten about Ishiwara's life is that he was actually the initiator of this very idealistic educational institution, Kendai. Um, yeah, and uh, as for the, for his in involvement with Kendai planning, um, he initiated that and he initiated this found foundation of Kendai based on his belief that Manchukuo should become a model for a pan-Asianist unity for the broader East Asia. So Ishiwara demanded that Kendai recruit faculty and students of different ethnic backgrounds. And he also insisted that those ethnically diverse faculty members and students be treated as equal partners as they endeavor to actualize the principle of ethnic harmony. Mm-hmm. So very idealistic and... Um, a lot of emphasis upon equality among, diff, you know, students of different ethnic background. Now, unfortunately, um, his idea of forming an East Asian League, which is a, you know, um, partnership among Japan, Manchukuo, and China that was ignored by the Kendai's planning committee and many of his idealistic plans did not materialize. But Ishiwara's conception of East Asian League continued to be pretty popular among some faculty members and students of Kendai. Okay, so that's about um, Ishiwara.
1: Thank you so much. I mean, I think that's something that you capture uh, very well in this book about the tension between, um, you know, like sort of, of, you know, this ideal of Minzoku Kyowa or like ethnic equality and ethnic harmony versus um, sort of, you know, the imposition of like Japanese customs and sort of Japanese sort of way of doing things in this university. Um, So so thank you for um, sharing that. Um, so another thing that you talk about in chapter two um, is um, sort of the, the the opinions and ideas about Pan-Asianism and about Japan's role in Asia, um, as these were expressed by various professors and faculty members associated with the university. Um, so could you tell us a little about their conceptions of Pan-Asianism? Um, and what does this tell us about Kenkoku University as an institution?
0: Okay, um, Yeah. In chapter two, I examined the number of academic works authored by faculty members. I had so much fun with uh, reading a few entries written by non-Japanese faculty members. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to first briefly talk about Japanese faculty members' conception. Now, what I found was that the Japanese faculty members' conceptions shared general characteristics of Japan's official vision of Pan-Asianism. Um, even though they disagreed as to how to forge an Asian unity, um, most of them accepted Japan's leadership in this endeavor. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Japanese faculty members expressed a relatively uniform vision of Pan-Asianism that was Japan-centered and hierarchical. Now, if you look at Korean and Chinese scholars' writings, you could find Sato and not-so-sato challenges to the centrality of Japan in the ongoing pan asianist endeavor. So, for instance, uh, one Korean scholar, Che Nam-sun, published an article that explicitly refuted the Japanese claim to the divine, unique imperial rule. And this is a case of a non-Japanese faculty member, a Korean member, freely expressing ideas that diverged significantly from the Japan-centered discourse that was prevalent in official discourses um, of Manchukuo and East Asia, Jap- Japanese empire. I also discuss another more subtle challenge that was found in a Chinese scholar's publications. What's interesting, um, is that Kendai as an institution allowed interchanges of ideas among Asian intellectuals, uh, including Japanese and non-Japanese, and that were expressed in faculty's scholarly works. And that's the evidence that Kendai faculty members were not just replicating the official version of Pan-Asianism, but they were exploring exploring. um, you know, different versions, different interpretations. And at least some of them were, um, you know, feeling at liberty to express really, really different meanings for the idea of Pan-Asian unity, rejecting, even rejecting Japan's central role in this endeavor.
1: Thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, so I mean I mean yeah that that's really interesting to hear that you know like there were even like some um, non like the non Japanese um, uh, faculty members at kenkoku University sort of I had, had had like a very complicated relationship with pan Asianism but ultimately they sort of um, accepted it uh, in some way or form. Um, so the, the, other, the other chapters of your book um, uh, look at uh, the experiences of the uh, of the students at, of this university and you sort of go, you know, you you cover the different ethnic groups. Um, so in chapter three, you discuss the ideas and experiences of Japanese students at uh, Kendai. So could you tell us a little about the backgrounds of these students and what it was like for them to study at this institution in Manchukuo? Yes.
0: Yes. Uh... Japanese students who attended Kendai um, came from all over Japan, and some of them, a few of them, were from Japan's colonies, like Taiwan and Korea. Um, But almost always, they were among the top, top rank at their middle schools. They had to pass a very competitive entrance exam and interview exam. For, for example, um, only 150 students were admitted to form the first entering class out of more than 7,000 applications. So that tells you how competitive this was. And For most of these Japanese students, attending Kendai was a big adventure, um, living apart from their families for the first time. Going outside of Japan for the first time and getting to know and living together with non-Japanese people for the first time. And the last one, um, daily interactions with non-Japanese classmates, had a huge impact on many of the Japanese students. Uh, Through such interactions, Japanese students were able to learn how their non-Japanese classmates and their families experienced and thought about Japan's policy in Manchukuo and East Asia. And as a result of that, some students from Japan came to have serious critique of Japanese imperialism. I also found some Japanese students developing sympathy toward Chinese and Korean students' nationalist sentiments. On the other hand, there were also some other Japanese students who solidified their sense of superiority as Japanese and strengthened their belief in the hierarchical notion of Pan-Asian unity led by Japan. So again, this chapter reinforces my overall argument that individual experiences and conceptions of Pan-Asianism were quite diverse at this institution, um, and Japanese students didn't just accept the official version of Pan-Asianism, rather. They actively examined it and reinterpreted the meaning of Asian unity, and they were doing that while having daily interactions with their non-Japanese friends, and the result of that was a, you know, wide variety of conceptions of pan-Asianism. <laughs>
1: thank you for sharing that um uh, that that's really interesting to hear um that, that for for like for some of the japanese students like interacting with um non japanese students sort of uh, made them a little sympathetic to their nationalists to those country like the the nationalist sympathies of those students but at the same time there were others for whom um, you know japanese superiority uh, was reinforced So in chapter four, you discuss the experiences of Korean and Taiwanese students um, at Kankoku University. So, of course, Korea and Taiwan were both, um, we had been colonies of Japan for a while. Um, But but why did they choose to enroll at this university? And what what was it like for them to study there? Um, And how did they navigate their dilemmas and choices?
0: Thank you. Uh, those are excellent questions and the exact questions that I investiga- investigated in this chapter. And as you indicated, Taiwan and Korea had been Japan's colonies since, you know, uh, 1895 for Taiwan and 1910 for Korea. And Japan claimed to assimilate Taiwanese and Koreans and make them equal to Japanese as the imperial subjects of the emperor. emperor. What this meant in practice was an intense program of Japanization of colonial subjects, repeated promise of equality between Japanese and the colonial subjects, and the persistent discrimination that betrayed the rhetoric of equality. Um, Those students from Taiwan and Korea grew up under such Japanization policy. So many of them had Japanese names, and they were officially acknowledged as Japanese. Many of them spoke fluent Japanese as well. Um, like the Japanese peers, Korean and Taiwanese students of Kendai were top-ranking excellent students in their middle schools. What this meant, oftentimes, was that they were um, very much assimilated to Japanese culture. they could speak fluent Japanese, um, they identified themselves as Japanese and so on. Now among aspiring young men of Korea and Taiwan, popular path to advance their career was to attend higher schools in Japan or um, attend Japanese Imperial universities built in different parts of the Japanese Empire and Kendai as the top university of Manchukuo, was one such option available to them. Uh, but at the same time, Kendai had two appealing points for those colonial um, young aspiring men. One was that the tuition, boarding, and other expenses were all covered by Kendai's scholarship. And the other appealing point of Kendai was that this university claimed to ensure equality among students of different ethnic backgrounds. Um, And in addition to that, Kendai promised secure employment to all of its graduates. So basically the idea was that after graduating from Kendai, all of its students uh, could get some governmental positions within Manchukuo. Um, So those are motives. And uh, among the Korean and Taiwanese students who attended Kendai, some seem to have had embraced Japan's assimilation policy and came to Kendai believing that they were actually Japanese. Others claimed that they chose to get out of their home countries out of indignation against Japan's colonial rule. In either case, what happened to most of these students was that they became awakened to their national identity as Korean or Taiwanese as they interacted with other Asian students on campus. And this awakening happened because even though they had been told that they were Japanese, Manchukuo and Kendai campus expected them to represent their own ethnic nation, that is, Korea or Taiwan. Now, as Korean or Taiwanese, they had the opportunities of exploring the meaning of Pan-Asianism with a, you know, fresh perspective. Some students came to reconcile their emerging nationalist sentiment as Korean or Taiwanese with Pan-Asianism, believing that their personal achievement as Taiwanese or Korean in this Pan-Asianist endeavor would bring honor to their own ethnic nation and benefit their home country. On the other hand, there were some Korean students who rejected Pan-Asianism as Japan's lip service and began to secretly work for Korean independence Mm -hmm. while enrolling at Kendai. So, uh, Those are about Korean and Taiwanese students' experiences.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting um, to hear that, again, like the Koreans and Taiwanese, like they they sort of had like a very complicated relationship with Japanese imperialism and with sort of being students um, of Kendai. So in chapter five, um, you discuss Chinese students, um, but, but, but you also mentioned that there were some specific challenges. There are some specific challenges to researching Chinese experiences at Kenkoku University. So what are these challenges um, and why would these Chinese students end up studying um, at, at a Japanese institution? So what did you discover about their experiences of being in Kendai?
0: Yes, um, this was the most challenging chapter in terms of analyzing sources. Um, The central source of information in this chapter is an anthology of former Chinese students' recollection essays. Mm -hmm. This anthology was published in the Chinese language in the People's Republic of China in 1997. And um, this Chinese source presents problems of how to read the narratives that were produced under extreme political constraints. Um, that's because, in light of the authorized narrative of the Second Sino Japanese War in the PRC, and also the risk of guilt by association with Japanese imperialism, it's not surprising that Chinese memoirs emphasize the negative aspects of their experiences of Kendai and represent Kendai as a vehicle of Japanese imperialism. Mm-hmm. So before reading this source, um, both I and my supervisor were skeptical whether this source could be used as um, used meaningfully. But close examination of these Chinese essays shows subtle variation in their experiences of Kendai. And in addition to that, I examined a limited number of memoirs written by former Chinese students that were published in the Japanese language in Japan, as well as some other sources. And I read those sources against the uniformly negative narrative presented in the Chinese anthology. So that's the method that I used in this chapter. And as a result of this cross-examination, I found um, a few points. So first of all, their motives, Chinese students' motives for attending Kendai were very similar to those of Korean and Taiwanese students. So, generous financial aid, promise of secure career path, and Kendai's reputed commitment to ethnic equality. While the Chinese anthology only briefly mentioned their motives, it's clear that no one was forced to attend Kendai. They all chose to do so voluntarily. Uh, Second, The Chinese anthology shows how the reality betrayed betrayed the idealistic promise of ethnic equality. They detested some of the Japanese customs and rituals that were forced upon all students, like daily recitation of Shinto poems before each meal and daily raising of Manchukuo and Japanese flags. Uh, You could find so many detailed criticisms against Kendai's curriculum, administration, specific faculty members, and students. And that is to be expected in the Chinese anthology. Now, interestingly, there are some brief mentions of their positive experiences with some Japanese faculty members and Japanese classmates. When the Chinese anthology authors bring up such a positive memory, they do so very carefully to frame that in a politically correct logic often used by top CCP officials in PRC. Uh, they would char- characterize their favorite Japanese teachers or classmates as rare and sincere individuals who were also the victims of Japanese imperialism because of their sincerity. Um, And finally, the most frequently discussed topic in the essays in the Chinese anthology is Kendai's Chinese students' involvement with secret anti-Japanese activities. The fact that Kendai produced the largest number of students arrested for their anti-Japanese activities and thoughts among the public colleges in Manchukuo was something that the Chinese anthology celebrated and used as a proof that they became awakened to their Chinese identity and patriotism while attending Kendai. They further emphasized the communist influence on their anti-Japanese activities. However, other sources that I read cast doubt on this strong leftist inclination of Kendai's Chinese students. So uh, those are some of the things that I learned from this research in chapter chapter five. Thank you
1: for sharing that. Um, so it's really interesting to hear about you know the fact that it's so difficult or that, that there were some challenges with. Um, you, you know doing research about chinese students but also the fact that you were able to sort of overcome those challenges and sort of find like a research methodology to be able to sort of analyze um the sources or the 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 you know the, the primary sources that the chinese um, students had left behind so that, 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 that's very interesting um so in chapter six um, you focus on the student Jukup, periodicals, um, and you analyze uh, the topics and ideas discussed in these publications. Um, so that, that was a very uh, fascinating chapter, too. So uh, what were the issues of the student periodicals that you analyzed contend with? Um, and what do these publications tell us about intellectual and institutional life in Kengkoku University during World War II um, and life in Manchukuo, Manchukuo and the Japanese Empire more broadly?
0: Thank you. Um, yes, this was the chapter that I really enjoyed researching and writing. Um, so, kinda student-run periodicals, which were published by student editors in bilingual of Japanese and Chinese, offer really invaluable insights into the lively interchanges of ideas among Kendae students. Um, I found that these periodicals published two types of writings. Uh, one is academic research done by Kendai students and another type um, of writings were works related to the topic of ethnic harmony. First, I'm going to talk about the academic research essays authored by students. Um, those essays show how the um, show that Kendai students were seriously responding to the university's mission to create a new culture and society in Manchukuo. So taking the standpoint of future leaders of the state of Manchukuo, student authors, both Japanese and non-Japanese students, offered very candid criticisms of Japan's policy in Manchukuo and elsewhere in East Asia. Um... Some, uh, some examples include an opinion piece about Manchukuo literature, um, observation of anti-Japanese movement in Manchukuo, and some hot debates about the historical significance of the outbreak of Japan-U.S. war in 1941. Now, the other type of works included in the student periodicals were the entries that focus on the topic of ethnic harmony. Unlike Kendai's faculty members who, you know, merely expounded on their theories, Kendai students experienced, practiced, and thought about this Pan-Asianist ideal in their everyday life in Kendai's ethnically integrated dormitory. So the tough questions they grappled in everyday life were, what exactly is the ethnic harmony? How can it be achieved? And can Pan-Asianism and ethnic nationalisms coexist? Mm-hmm. Um, reading these periodicals show that Kendai students truly struggled with the contradictions they found between the ideals and the reality. Um, to say Asia is one or let's create ethnic harmony in Manchuko, was very easy but to put it into practice was extremely hard, especially when Japan's discriminatory policies continued to torment non-Japanese residents of Manchukuo and colonial subjects in other parts of the Japanese empire, and also when Japan and China continued to fight the war. And yet, Kendai students expressed their candid um, opinions and freely disagreed with each other. They couldn't reach a consensus, but a dominant discourse emerged to to celebrate the model of unity in diversity, arguing that dedication to one's own ethnic nation was not only compatible with Pan-Asianism, but actually an essential attribute of a leader who would realize the ethnic harmony. Analysis of these periodicals present the strongest support for my argument, because here we find such a genuine exchange of ideas about Pan-Asianism and the considerable appeal of the egalitarian version of this ideology among these Kendai students. And they were, you know, doing this lively exchange of ideas uh, very late into Japan's war.
1: Thank you thank you that, that, that's really um, interesting to hear um, about um, you know the the, the the kinds of things that were published um, in the in the Juku periodicals um so another question I had was about um, some of these other ethnic minorities in Manchuria who we probably people who study maybe the Japanese Empire maybe don't talk about enough um, so like there were Russians there were also mongol um, studying in this university. So um, what was it like for students from these ethnic backgrounds to study at Kendai?
0: Yes. Um, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't form a standalone chapter on these Russian and Mongolian students, uh, but I did include some of their writings uh, coming from Juku Periodical, student-run mm-hmm. periodicals, student-run um, periodicals. Now, uh, being minorities on Kendai campus did not deter them, those uh, Russian and Mongolian students, from expressing a clear political uh, agenda they had when when showing their support for Pan-Asianism. So, for instance, when student periodicals published a number of essays discussing the historical significance of the outbreak of Japan-U.S. war, one Mongolian student contributed an essay that basically called attention to the important role Mongolia could play in the current situation. Uh, So in, in late 1941 and early 1942, everyone was caught up with the ongoing war between Japan and the allies that were taking place across the Pacific and also in Southeast Asia. But this Mongolian student at Kendai basically said, you know, don't forget the northern border. Mongolian development is vital in securing the northern, northern border against communism so that we can create the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. So uh, just like that, these minority students with Mongolian and Russian backgrounds perceived a match between their own political agendas and the Pan-Asianist endeavor of creating ethnic harmony in Manchukuo and East Asia more broadly. Another Mongolian student even embraced Japan's leading position in this ongoing effort. But this student was not being a submissive or obsequious collaborator of Japanese imperialism. Um, Rather, he voiced his very um, explicit criticisms of Japan's policy in Manchukuo and East Asia from the standpoint of an equal partner in this enterprise. Um, So in that sense, these students' writings reveal how Kendai's non-Japanese students reconciled their sense of nationalism with the egalitarian conception of Pan-Asianism and strove to act on this idea even during the intensifying war uh, happening in Asia.
1: That's very intriguing um, um and I've got, in some ways it's sort of inter- this is sort of connected with some of the topics that I'm interested in about um the connection between Indian anti-colonial figures and um uh, Japan. So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so, of course, uh, with Japan's defeat in World War Two and the fact that Manchukuo was also dissolved um, in 1945, so Kenkoku University was closed as well. Um, so what were the fates of these students, both Japanese and non-Japanese in subsequent years? Um, and as you mentioned, that you interacted with some of them. So could you share a little bit about that, too? And what were the legacies of these this institution in the post-war period?
0: Yes. Um, so closing of Kendai was very sudden uh, in 1945. Um, and... At that point in August 1945, students who remained on campus were basically told to return home on their own. And it was often a very difficult journey, uh, going home to Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Mm -hmm. uh, various places in China, Mongolia, um, and so on. And after returning to their respective home countries, due to their association with Kendai many former students had a difficult time adjusting to their respective societies. For, for example, during the Allied occupation of Japan, former Kendai faculty members and students living in Japan were blacklisted and removed from public offices. Um, as for Korean students, they had to choose between North and South in the fast mm-hmm. developing civil war in their home country. Most of the former Kendai students in Korea chose to reside in South, and they lost contact with their peers who chose North. Um, Former Chinese students probably had the toughest lives after 1945. Um, Due to their link, association with Kendai, they became easy targets um, of persecution as national traitors, especially under Chinese Communist Chinese communist rule. So life after Kendai was extremely challenging for its alumni and former students. Even so, some of them established the Kenkoku University Alumni Association in Tokyo, Japan in 1953, and they continued to restore contacts. You know, they they, they made con- efforts to restore contacts. The association has published memoirs and other sources related to Kendai. Um, The association also held meetings in and outside Japan and forged exchanges among former Kendai students across national borders in East Asia. Um, What's interesting is that Even before the normalization of relations, some of the Japanese students managed to get in touch with their former classmates living in Korea, Taiwan, and China. Um, The alumni association's lively activities continued on all through the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, as As I said earlier, I had a opportunity to meet with some of those former former Japanese students back in 2010 and 2011 now um, in 2011 Kendai Alumni Association held its final general meeting um, that was in that was in Tokyo in 2010 and that General meeting of the association was attended by over 120 people, including one person coming from South Korea. And it was a very lively banquet with, you know, so many, so many people who were so happy to see each other in their 80s and 90s. Um, Now, this long lasting lively exchange across national borders was the legacy of Kendai's Pan-Asianist education. Of course, Kendai, the institution itself, vanished together with Manchuko and the Japanese Empire in 1945. And with that, Pan-Asianism as Japan's imperial ideology also you know, met its inevitable demise. But by providing a space for its students to express divergent expressions interpretations of Pan-Asianism and allowing them to make sustained efforts at building an understanding through honest exchange of ideas, Kendai laid a ground for the strong bond among its students that survived the dissolution of the empire. And um, as for the historians today, Kendai's institutional history offers a repository of uniquely diverse articulations of Pan-Asianism, not just by Japanese, but also by non-Japanese individuals. It also provides a perfect window into the actual experience and practice of Japan's imperial ideology. So those are the legacies that I see um
1: Thank you for sharing that um that, that, that's that's really fascinating to hear uh, about sort of the legacy that sort of persisted um yeah I remember like when I was reading your book one one thing that you mentioned is that one black hole in is of course North Korea that there you were not able to recover any experiences of students who might have from Kendai who may have ended up in North Korea um but but yeah it, it's really um really uh, fascinating to hear that the activities of the alumni association continued until so recently. Um, Yeah, I I also read uh, actually just earlier that um, one of the former like senior political leaders in Korea was also a Kenkoku University alumnus.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, In South Korea, many of those, you know, military officers, uh, high ranking government officials uh, came from graduates of Kendai, Um, and and because of such positions they had, uh, they were able to make early contacts with former classmates residing in Taiwan, China, and Japan.
1: That's really interesting. Um, So so thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, And thank you so much once again, Yuka, for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today. Um, So before we end, could you tell us what you are working on right now?
0: Yes. um, Now, before I talk about my current interest, I want to thank you, Shatranjay, for giving me this opportunity and taking time to read my book. Thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful to work with you on this project. And, um, you know, your questions were so uh, thoughtful and very, uh, yeah, um, they came from your thorough reading of the book. Thank you. Um, As for my current work, I continue to be interested in the rich interactions among people across national borders in East Asia, uh, which often challenge the assumption of easy, clear-cut binary of colonizers versus colonized, or as for the, you know, colonized people, collaboration versus resistance. Examination of these people-to-people interchanges also complicates our understanding of sense of nationalism. So my broad interest remain the same. Now, I am currently looking at Um, looking into the experiences of Christian missionaries in Manchuria. Uh, There were American, Japanese, and Chinese Christians working on the ground of Manchuria in the 1930s and 40s. So I am interested to learn about their experiences. Uh, Did they work together at all? Uh, Did they communicate with each other? how did they see each other in the time of intensifying conflict among their own, you know, nation states. So this is one of the topics that I am working on right now. And I hope to continue looking for hidden stories of people to people interactions like that. Um, Yeah, so again, thank you, Shatran for taking time with me today.
1: Oh yes, uh, thank you so much. Um, and and the, your your the, your next project sounds very fascinating too. I um, mean, I look forward to following your work, um, and perhaps in the future we can have you again uh, on the New Books Network podcast. Um, so 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 thank you again. Um, so th- this was an interview with uh, Dr. Hiruma Kishida about her book Kankoku University and the experience of Pan Asianism, education in the Japanese Empire. Um, uh, so so thank you, and I hope you have a good day, Yuka. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.